Hey, Jenny Levi Lusco here, and we're so excited that you're watching this message from Fresh Life Church. Mm. Uh, this is a part of a series called The Spitfire Fund, and you're going to learn a lot more about that. If you're like, what is a Spitfire Fund? Oh, you're going to find Check out. Check this out. We put together an amazing presentation. It's a really creative way to do Bible study. I'll be back in just a minute uh, to wrap things up, and I, I have a word from God for you as well. I'm really excited for you to hear, so make sure you stay tuned to the end. Uh, but enjoy this message that's moving us towards December 6th, when everybody that's a part of Fresh Life Church, wherever you live, in the country or world, uh, we're asking you to consider what God would have you to give as a Spitfire Fund offering, a one-time above and beyond your tithes and offerings gift that would help God do his work in the earth. God doesn't have to use us. We need his blessings a lot more than he needs our resources, but he partners with us uh, to do this great work. So enjoy this creative Bible story presentation, and I'll see you in just a moment. Let us know in the chat, too, where you're watching from. We're going to check back on comments. Uh, let us know in the YouTube archive, Facebook, come wherever you're watching this. Watch. Uh, let us know where you're watching from, what God's doing in your story, how you became a part of Fresh Life Church, what you like for breakfast, what oh. you're wearing, really anything. <laughs> uh, we'd love to see that, and thank you for participating in this ministry. Love you. What do a popular card game, a pocket-sized piece of technology, a worldwide virtual reality phenomenon, a desktop toy, and one of the most popular statues in the history of mankind all have in common? Crowdfunding. Crowdfunding is the practice of funding a project or venture by raising many small amounts of money from a large number of people. Whether supporting an entrepreneur with a groundbreaking product allying with an artist in their creative exploits, or sponsoring an inventor with an innovative concept that could revolutionize their industry, crowdfunding makes it possible for everyday people to back the dreams of other everyday people and help to turn them into a reality. And I think uh, when people hear the word crowdfunding, uh, it's something that they may kind of hesitate, but in reality, it's something that they're participating in um, oftentimes on a, on a regular, on almost daily basis. In 2019, there were 6,455,080 crowdfunding campaigns worldwide. All told, yearly in North America, a whopping $17.2 billion is generated through crowdfunding, and that amount is growing year over year. So how does crowdfunding work? And why are so many people using it as the means for giving their dream wings to fly? The main factor is risk. In traditional methods of bringing a new idea to market, the creator assumes lots of risk. Fiscally, they have to generate loads of capital, so they're often indebted to a bank or a small group of investors. Economically, they have no true litmus test for knowing whether their idea has any chance of actually succeeding in the broader market. Will their product or service actually generate any popularity? Will anyone actually buy what they're selling? There are many blind spots. Furthermore, are they capable of creating a following? Maybe they have a great idea and even the money to fund it, but how do they connect with their customer base? That's a lot of questions for one person to answer, and a lot of betting on yourself that many would-be entrepreneurs simply aren't comfortable with. But that's where crowdfunding is different. Where normally the individual must assume countless risks, with crowdfunding, those risks are spread out amongst, well, the crowd. Creators seek out backers, often through online platforms such as GoFundMe, Kickstarter, or Indiegogo. They ask for a small investment, sometimes even as small as a dollar. The hope being not that they'd stumble upon one or two individuals who can bankroll their operation, though that's a possibility, but rather to raise a community of fanatical supporters around their idea. 
The risk from the entrepreneur is lessened considerably because of the number of loyal, committed people that has joined his team, even though they may not be part of the business itself, they've literally joined his or her team to advance this vision or this cause. And that's really where not only is risk minimized, but the power comes into play because now you've got not only the funding, but you've got the committed base of supporters. The average fully funded crowdfunding campaign has around 300 backers, with the average pledge from one of those backers being less than $100. In exchange for a small pledge, the creator of the idea will often offer incentives relating to their idea. For example, in 2014, a creator named Zach Danger Brown started one of the most infamous crowdfunding campaigns ever. His initial ask? $10 to make potato salad. Little did he know, his afternoon appetite was going to turn him into a viral star. He ended up raising $55,000 and offered his investors incentives like receive a bite of potato salad and hang out in the kitchen with me while I make the potato salad. In a usual campaign, a backer may contribute $10 in exchange for being mentioned in the credits of an indie film, or $50 in order to receive one of the first editions of the product they're backing, or $100 to get a unique experience with one of the creators. The options are endless. But incentives aren't the main reason why people back crowdfunding campaigns. Crowdfunding is so successful because it gives people the chance to be a part of something bigger than themselves, a crowd. So I think one of the misnomers of crowdfunding is that an individual is looking for a return on investment. And in reality, data suggests that people who participate in crowdfunding, they really aren't interested as much in the return of their investment as they are in participating and benefiting a cause or teaming up with people that are like-minded with similar beliefs. And that's the secret sauce of the whole concept itself. Human beings have an inherent need to be connected to others. It's deeply rooted in our psychology. We need community. We need to be surrounded by people that share our interests, passions, and goals. Crowdfunding allows us to step outside ourselves and connect with other people who are interested in the same things we are and see the same future we do. It gives us something to fight for, something to believe in, a sense of belonging, a deep-rooted need that's existed as long as humans have existed. Throughout history, crowdfunding has been used to accomplish massive tasks. The United States crowdfunded the pedestal that the Statue of Liberty now stands upon. Alexander Pope used crowdfunding to support the publication of the first English translation of the Iliad. Mozart used crowdfunding to create his concertos. But perhaps the most iconic and history-shaping example of crowdfunding was so important that it changed the face of the greatest war ever fought. That crowdfunding campaign was the Spitfire Fund, and it helped turn the tide of World War II. When the 1930s rolled around, Britain could see the trouble brewing with their neighbors to the east. Even though Germany had been denied the right to a military air force by the Treaty of Versailles, which concluded World War I in 1919, they found ways to circumvent this ruling. They began shoring up their powers and developing new aircraft preceding their war effort. 
Great Britain saw the writing on the wall and knew they needed to begin developing their own technology to combat the inevitable offensive. Knowing that any battle fought over the skies of their mainland would ultimately involve defending their cities from enemy bombers, the Brits knew they needed to focus their energy on developing fighter planes that could be used to repel invaders. So, they created the Spitfire. More specifically, R.J. Mitchell created the Spitfire. A British aircraft engineer, who at one point designed racing planes, was called upon in 1934 by the military to design another racing plane. This one just had to pack a little more of a punch. Unfortunately, Mitchell died while the Spitfire was being developed. He never had the chance to lay his eyes upon the final masterpiece he was working to create. But his brilliance laid the groundwork for one of the greatest advancements in aircraft technology at that point in history. The Spitfire Mark I was a breathtakingly lethal combination of speed, maneuverability, and firepower. It boasted a 1,130-horsepower 1 Merlin Rolls-Royce engine that could reach top speeds of 362 miles per hour and eight 303 caliber machine guns that could deliver a whopping 160 rounds per second. However, the most important piece of the Spitfire design was the wings. The elliptical-shaped wings on the Spitfire made it the most agile airplane in the sky, crucial for dogfights. It was a thing of beauty. Great Britain had created the plane they needed to win the war. Now, they just had to make a whole lot more of them. And fast. There was just one problem. Great Britain was broke. World War I was hardly two decades in the past, and it had completely exhausted Great Britain's resources. The coffers were empty, but mass-producing planes cost money. Meanwhile, in early July 1940, Germany had set its eyes upon Great Britain. It had stormed across Europe and defeated France. Now Great Britain stood alone as the last bastion of democracy and hope for the Allied forces in the European theater. Britain had to hold the line. There was no other way around it. The Luftwaffe, the massive German air force, was called into action. The Nazi commander, Hermann Göring, declared triumphantly that the United Kingdom would be brought to its knees in four days as the Luftwaffe barreled down upon them with more than 2,600 aircraft compared to Britain's measly 640. Life on the ground in British cities became hell on earth. Every night, bombing raids. Every day, dogfights. Bombs demolished homes, schools, churches, and places of business. Families would barricade themselves in air raid bunkers, praying to God that they could just survive. But the bombs just kept coming. Merciless, deafening, unending. These were dire straits. The Germans were laying waste to the streets and squares of Great Britain. However, the one thing the Nazis couldn't take from the British was their fighting spirit. When the few Spitfires the Royal Air Force had at the time would fly overhead, the souls of the British people soared with them. Those planes and pilots symbolized freedom, democracy, and the battle against evil. Faced with the stark reality of their circumstances, but buoyed by the hope that the planes provided, it invoked in the British a deep sense of nationalism and pride. They saw themselves as the immovable object fatefully pitted against the unstoppable force of the German war machine. Unsolicited, the British government began receiving donations from every corner of England to make more Spitfires. The British people knew that they had to do something, so if they couldn't fly, they would give to make more planes. 
It was at this moment in 1940 when Winston Churchill appointed William Maxwell Aitken, First Baron Beaverbrook, Lord Beaverbrook for short, the Minister of Aircraft Production. He was in charge of speeding up production of the Spitfire so that Great Britain could have even a puncher's chance at staving off complete invasion and destruction at the hands of the Germans. In a stroke of gravitas and genius, Lord Beaverbrook turned this spontaneous generosity into a nationwide appeal to the British people. The Spitfires, he declared, would be crowd-funded. If the British people wanted to defeat the Germans, it was going to take every single one of them. This was called the Spitfire Fund. The fund itself was actually broken up into smaller funds that could be organized by anyone. A neighborhood would have a Spitfire Fund, a well-to-do family, a theater, a circus troupe, whole cities and towns, sports teams, and churches. People organized all sorts of means to raise money to fully back their fund. During a raid, the proprietor of a theater pushed a wheelbarrow through the aisles asking for donations to the fund. A group of alleged draft-dodging performers and gypsies funded a plane. A farmer even sold tickets for onlookers to view the only field in Kent without a German airplane in it, so he could contribute to the fund. A Spitfire plane was considered fully funded when the amount of £5,000 was reached. Then, whoever organized that fund would have the chance to name their Spitfire. The planes were named after countries, families, or even given such whimsical titles as Fun of the Fair. Everyone from every corner of British life, whether rich or poor, famous or anonymous, could contribute to the Spitfire Fund. An early contributor to the fund was Lady Lucy Houston. She supplied 100,000 pounds, nearly $4 million in today's currency, towards developing the Rolls-Royce engine that roared to life inside of every Spitfire plane. School children would pool together their spare change to make donations to the fund. It was truly a family affair. This was not merely an appeal to the richest of the nation. The times were too dire to count on the generosity of a few. This was an appeal to the soul of the nation. It was the British thing to do to give to the Spitfire Fund. Eventually, the British were turning out planes even faster than the Germans were. Now that the planes had been created, the Battle of Britain could truly begin. The RAF pilots that flew in the Battle of Britain are some of the most storied aviators in the history of airborne warfare. In the end, their small but unflinchingly valiant force rebuffed the German offensive. They eventually were able to cross the strait and begin their own bombing missions on the German mainland in the fall of 1940 and beyond. In the end, the Germans suffered twice the casualties of the British in the Battle of Britain. When speaking of those famed RAF pilots, Winston Churchill once famously said, Never in the field of human conflict was so much owed by so many to so few. But, if we're being honest, that statement's not completely accurate. In this case, the many and the few were actually one and the same. Without the Spitfire pilots, the Battle of Britain couldn't have been fought. However, without the Spitfire fund, those brave pilots wouldn't have had a plane to fly in the first place. Without the sacrifice of one, the sacrifice of the other would not be possible. And ultimately, the success of all depended on everyone doing their part. In this case of crowdfunding, the crowd became the co-pilots. Long story short, it was all possible because they did it together. One person wasn't more important, but no one sat out. And this reality, the power that's possible when people work together, has been seen time and time again throughout the course of history. When people come together, 
they can do incredible things, both for good and for evil. In Genesis 11, we find one of the most iconic Bible passages and images of collective power, the Tower of Babel. Genesis tells us that all the people of earth at one point had the same language and used this powerful unifying tool to build an ancient skyscraper fabled to have stood over 100 meters tall. The Bible tells us that the people said to themselves, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower whose top is in the heavens. Let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. The structure is called a ziggurat. It actually comes from an Akkadian word that translates as a temple palace, a modern day pyramid. And they're elevating it up to the very top where at the height of the pyramid would have actually been a shrine, which they would have understood as the place where the gods would dwell. This is full on rebellion. The people wanted to build the tower so they could rise to the same level as God. When God saw all that was going on, he uttered a revelation that still reverberates with truth to this day. In verse 7, God says, Behold, they are one people, and they have all one language, and this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. But mixed into the rebellion is this really intriguing truth that they're actually using God-given gifts uh, ingenuity, innovation, creativity, communication, and language in order to achieve something to make themselves great, to make a name for themselves, to elevate themselves to the place where only God should be. And the consequences in Genesis chapter 11 is the division of the people. And so God comes down and he does not allow them to, to build this massive tower. In the instance of Babel, because of the self-deification of the people, he was forced to stop the building project by confusing their languages so that they weren't able to understand each other, and the people scattered. But it begs the question, God said of the Tower of Babel that nothing is impossible when a group of people are working together towards a common goal. What could happen if people got together with a righteous purpose, in complete unity, speaking the language of revival with the wind at their back, believing that God wanted to do something through them so big, so incredible, so unbelievably wonderful that they could hardly even imagine it? You'd have the early church. In Acts 2, 42-47, Luke relates to his readers an incredible revelation about how the early church functioned. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. We have this brilliant redemptive reversal in Acts chapter 2. We have this picture of all of these people, like from all of these different cultures, from all of these different places, these ethnos, these ethnicities that come together actually for a festival. And while they're together, they hear Peter proclaim the good news of the gospel. But here's the unique, very distinctive aspect of this. When they hear the gospel, they don't hear it in the common tongue, they hear it in their own tongues. 
They hear it in their family languages. What does the Spirit do? The Spirit actually redemptively reverses the consequence of Genesis chapter 11 and brings it into a beautiful redemptive story. It's actually a right orientation of all those creative gifts that God gave to uh, the people in Genesis chapter 11. Ingenuity, creativity, innovation, all those things that can be used for either good or for evil. It was this unity urgency and synergy that compelled the church to give and sacrifice for the sake of the way. From the dirt poor to the extravagantly rich, everyone played their part. And that teamwork was the beginning of something that continues to thrive even today, more than two millennia later. The early church was crowdfunded, and we have them to thank for where we now sit. This is our heritage. This is our origin story. We wouldn't be here if it wasn't for the generosity of those few who picked up their cross and declared their allegiance to the name of Jesus. They knew their cause was righteous, initiated by Jesus' coming and resurrection. They were united, baptized with fire and tongues, speaking the language of heaven. They built something truly breathtaking. The imperative of the gospel required them to take the message and the good news of the gospel to all people, all nations, all ethnicities, and especially so those that have found themselves on the margin of society. They saw what was in their hands and looked ahead with anticipation, believing that they were the start of something that would change the world forever. As we look in the rearview mirror, we can trace the finger of God throughout the ages. He's been with his church, working through us, moving in us, so that more can be welcomed in. So as we look at Paul and we see like, Paul is planting churches in Corinth and Philippi and Ephesus um, in Rome, we're talking about societies that are war-torn, societies that have a high rate of orphans, societies that um, food is not possible, that economic systems are disassociative, like they're not equal. We're talking about systems where there are legitimately people who are in deep need and suffering. The ecclesia, the church, is the solution to meet the needs of the community. And we have to ask this question, how in the world, in the first century, does the church explode with such growth? I would say that they explode with such growth because of an extreme generosity that they live by. Why? Because they themselves have experienced the generosity of the risen King Jesus. One of the greatest witnesses that we have, the greatest opportunities that we have to show the winsome victory of Christ is by, with our hands and our feet, with uh, our words and our works, matching the generosity that we've received to giving to others. And so I'll just give you some examples from the first century church. Um, they took in orphans. They took in widows. They uh, gave food to those that were in need. They gave clothing to those that did not have clothing. They took people who were in shelters or on the street and brought them in to their houses. Like this was an extreme level of generosity. When the world looked at them and said, y'all are nuts, you're crazy. You should not be doing these types of things. And they responded by saying, but Christ did exactly this for us. Which leads us to today this moment. The movement they began all those generations ago has now come to rest in our hands. That great cloud of witnesses now looks to us and asks, what will you build? 2020 has been a war. We've been attacked on every side. 
Fear has made its way to our doorstep. Difficulty upon difficulty have encroached upon our homes, communities, and families. Will we allow ourselves to surrender? To throw up the white flag? To succumb to the prevailing moral laziness of our day? Will we allow the strains and pains of an unprecedented year to slow us down? Will we give in when evil comes knocking? Or will we come together? Will we believe there is more to be done? Will we look ahead to the future of our church, the future of our communities, and the future of our world, committed to a brighter day that we can help bring forth? With a fire in our hearts, will we sacrifice so that others can experience victory? In the midst of this battle, we can rally around a common good. Together, we can put something beautiful into flight. Propeller and Wings The propeller and wings of a plane allow it to take flight. These outreach initiatives are all about supporting organizations as they launch building and expansion projects. Hi everyone at Fresh Life Church. My name is Paige and I work at the Charity Water Headquarters in New York. And I just wanted to thank you all for your incredible generosity over the years and for so graciously working to help us fund another project this year at a school in Malawi. We really believe that Clean water is the seed for so many other opportunities to flourish, from health, of course, to education, to economic opportunity, and so much more. And that all starts with you making this work possible. So thank you so much. I cannot wait to keep you updated on the way. And as things progress, I'll be um, sharing more information with you. But up next, my uh, colleague Amanda is going to share some more information about our work in Malawi. And again, just want to say thank you for all you make possible. Hi, everyone. My name is Amanda, and I'm a water programs associate with Charity Water. And I have the privilege of working really closely with our partner, United Purpose. Now, we've been partnering with United Purpose since 2018, and all the projects that we implement with them are in the Doha district, which is in the central region of Malawi. Now, it's estimated that only about two-thirds of the population of the Doha district have access to clean and safe drinking water. So this is a really high-needs area for Malawi. Now, we know that in schools, water, sanitation, and hygiene is really important for the students to keep them healthy and keep attending classes, especially for young girls. And just like in the U.S., Hand washing has been the number one way to prevent the spread of COVID-19. And so all of our partners are taking that really seriously. And it's exciting to be able to provide um, hand washing stations in schools. And so we at Charity Water and our partners would never be able to do this great work without our really generous supporters like you. So thank you. engine and fuselage. The engine is the heart of the plane, and the fuselage is what keeps the plane together. These outreach initiatives are all focused on families, the heart and backbone of our communities. All of these initiatives are focused on supporting organizations that work to serve, restore, and love families. The Mary Market is so special to me because it hits so close to home. I grew up in a single mother household with a mom who was disabled, so we lived government paycheck to paycheck, and that made the holidays really hard. And my mom was so awesome about reaching out to different organizations in our community to make sure that we would have Christmas presents under the tree come Christmas morning. 
but that was super hard for her. And as an adult, I'm able to look back on just those different Christmas memories and see it in a different way, see the struggle of reaching out and having to ask for help at Christmas, but also that when she partnered with these organizations, which were wonderful, she wasn't necessarily getting a say in what we were getting Christmas morning. Oftentimes, Christmas morning, as we were opening up our presents, it was just as much of a surprise to us as it was to my mom about what we were going to be getting. That's why the Mary Market is so special, that families get this beautiful experience where the parents are getting a say in what Christmas looks like. They're coming through, they're getting to pick out their Christmas presents for each of their kids. They're getting to be a part of wrapping the presents and placing them under the tree. And I just think that's so special for us as we come around the Merry Market that we get to be memory makers. We get to be a part of Christmas morning being a beautiful experience for the entire family and not just for the kids. You know, something that I think is so powerful about this year's Mary Market is that we're able to look back to last year at the end of 2019 when we gave to the 2020 offering where we intentionally set money aside for this year's Mary Market. You know, with that money, we've been able to purchase bikes for kids, beautiful decorations so that parents can really enjoy their experience at the Mary Market, and honestly, so much more. And I just really love the way that we're able to do that now as we head into the Spitfire Fund offering that we're able to set ourselves up for 2021's Merry Market. And finally, nuts and bolts. The nuts and bolts are the small but extremely important necessities that keep a plane in the air. These outreach initiatives are focused on supporting organizations that are serving people in the most vital and necessary ways, things that many of us consider commonplace. Back in 2016, we launched a new mobile outreach called Search and Rescue. And at the time, especially along the West Coast, or I think a lot of big coastal cities, the issue of people experiencing homelessness was really exploding. And there was camps and tent cities popping up out closer to the suburbs and away from the downtown core. And the people that were living out there didn't have the same access to services. So we have a van that goes out five nights a week and they do the same route each week so that the camps can count on us coming. It starts out by providing basic life essentials, so food, clothing, but also a human connection. Hey, what's your name? What's going on with you? And ideally, we're gonna then help those people find a path out of homelessness. But one of the things that that part of the city didn't have was any sort of shower service. Through this donation, we're going to be able to, once a week, have a shower truck come out to this part of town and provide, it looks like we're gonna shoot for about 20 showers for the day that it's out there. And it's huge. I mean, think about the smell for one thing, you know, it's sure. uncomfortable. Sure. But then also think about if you are experiencing homelessness and you're working to get out of that, and you haven't showered for a few weeks or months or whatever it may be, you don't wanna show up at a job interview like that, or you don't wanna show up maybe even for a medical appointment sure. or the social security office or whatever it is mm -hmm. that you need to do, just affirming people's dignity and that they're all made in the image of God. And even something as simple as a shower can really affirm that for someone. All told, our Spitfire Fund will help launch the dreams of dozens of outreach partners locally and globally. Boys and girls clubs, warming centers, food banks, youth organizations, fighting human trafficking, providing services for the disabled. This is the battle we fight for the souls of our cities, to see the good and stop the evil. Make no mistake, 
All this and more is possible, but it's going to take all of us. Young and old, rich and poor, don't count yourself out. We are the few and we are the many. And if not us, then who? We weren't created to take the back seat when the battle comes to our front door. We are the church. And when 2020 bears its teeth, we don't back down, we double down. When the bombs are falling and bullets are blazing, the plane can't sit in the hangar. Let's believe for better days and fight to see them come to pass. Together, we can make this thing fly. Come on now. Does that excite you? If, as the old country preacher said, if that don't light your fire, friend, your wood is wet. I tell you what. This is what we are here for. This is what God has saved us for. This is our calling. Church was never meant to be a bless me club. It was never meant to be about what we could get out of it. God redeemed us so we might be positioned to touch the world. And that is what these days are all about. So many people have written in, what is the Spitfire Fund? What is the Spitfire Fund? That's the Spitfire Fund. The Spitfire Fund is us recognizing the call of God on our lives and how great this salvation is and how it's too great to keep to ourselves and really what can happen. In these days, we've been mobilized and, uh, and we believe that God has given new dreams and new visions and we want to say yes to those things. You know, every church has a birthday. Our birthday is January 14th. That's when our first Fresh Life worship experience ever happened. Uh, you know, in this new normal post-COVID mid-COVID, good Lord, please let it be near the end of COVID world. So, someone said, what is it like, you know, when you preach to small crowds? I was like, it can't get smaller than 14. First time we ever had a Fresh Life service, there were 14 people. And so uh, I, I guess it could get smaller. 13 is smaller than 14. But we haven't had a day since the opening of our church where, where we had less than that. And so, I mean, when, when you think about the small, humble beginnings of what God intended to do, and as we look back now on this almost $3 million mark of outreach dollars given out to outreach partners, I just marvel because I was in the room when it happened, when 14 people gathered and we said, welcome to Fresh Life Church for the first time. And God saw this moment in that moment. And so that means then that as God sees this moment, as we gather now, an army of people all over the world who are a part of Fresh Life Church you realize that there are people all around the earth who are bought in, linked up by the technology that God's given to us. And we now together approach this moment saying, God, what's in your heart? We're here to, to crowdfund heaven's dream. And, uh, and I love that. I was just thinking about our birthday as I was reading in Acts 2. And we just uh, were brilliantly guided through that by my friend Joel, who's a theologian and has helped us greatly. He is an expert at really looking at the the whole counsel of God's word and finding in a message the theological core. We've, we've had him help us as we've worked through books we published before, both Jenny and myself. And, and I always love talking to him because he's so dang smart. Um, but Joel brought us from uh, Babel to Pentecost. And that really is an arc of scripture. In Babel, we were weakened because the collective crowdfunding power was being used for evil. And so God confused and divided uh, those who were there to defy him. They were saying, let's make a name for ourselves and let's stay together. And God had said, scatter around the world. Be blessed and be a blessing. And so God said, I have to stop you from doing the thing you're doing because it's evil. 
And in the church, what we find, the birthday of the church is a reversal of Babel. And that's Acts 2. I'm going to read it to you. It's, it's on the screen if you didn't bring a copy of the scripture. Um, this is, some of you are like so relieved. Like, this is finally a Bible study. Y'all, that was a Bible study. We were taken to church in a, a moment ago. Can we thank our team who put that together? So many different people worked on that. And I, I think it's such a creative telling of the story. God, it, it touched our minds. It touched our hearts. It's just brilliant. But, but Acts 2, it says, when the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. Then there appeared to them divided tongues as a fire, and one sat upon each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And this moment, God reversed what had happened at Babel. And the church was now united once again and given a collective power to fulfill a united mission in one accord. And when the Spirit came upon them on that day, there was something you could see and there was something you could hear. There was something evident to the eye and there was something audible to the ear. The text says you could see flames that appeared upon their heads, the symbol of the Holy Spirit. But what you could hear was utterance, was words of prophecy, was words of knowledge, was words of scripture, was words of life that were being spoken that would unite and lift up the name of Jesus. Babel was about a name for ourselves. Pentecost was about there's a name that's already been given that's above every name, the name that God has sent, the name of his son, the name that heals, the name that saves, the name that builds. So what you could see was a flame. What you could hear was a word. They all began to speak the word of God with power. So you might say when the church was born, you could see fire and you could hear them spitting words of revelation. Y'all, it was a spitfire day, the day the Holy Spirit came. On the church's birthday, when we gather, there's a spitfire. That's the result. And I think I think that that's what God is doing in our hearts right now. I think in these days, that's what God wants more than ever. He wants his church united in the name of Jesus. He wants his church to come together. The world needs nothing more than a united church because it's a divided world. It's a broken world. So we need a united church. We need a church that's filled with fire from heaven that is there for our weakness. I'll have you remember the church was so beaten down by the crucifixion. So many of the disciples were were, were war-torn, ready to give up when Jesus died on the cross. Jesus had to chase down two of them as they were leaving town, like bouncing on this whole dream. No, oh, come back, come back. And they ran back, seven miles back to Jerusalem. And so I, I think in this moment, as, as we all absorb these events that we've gone through, survived, some of us might even say, of this year, we might feel a little bit like, man, it's just been one thing after another thing. Some of you can relate to that. Beat down by this, the savageness of life. Someone said that life can be an all-out assault on the notion that God is good. And I wonder how you resonate with that. And for the church to be given a mission to go reach out, it's almost like, gosh, we're barely surviving here. That's how they felt until the Holy Spirit came upon them. And when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, all of a sudden you look at an old challenge with new resolve. 
And I believe in Jesus' name, even though some of you are like, we're just holding it together here, man. We're just coping it together. We're just, we're just coping from day to day, paycheck to paycheck, hanging on by a thread here. I really believe that as the Holy Spirit comes upon you, flame upon your head and words coming out of your mouth, there will be a new strength where there was weakness. There will be new power where there was once worry and fear. And worship and exaltation of Jesus in our hearts is going to cause us to come together in one accord and the roar of the lion of the tribe of Judah will be heard in all the earth. I believe we are here for such a time as this. And if you didn't already, in the day, next days or, or so, you'll be receiving this in the mail. We sent these out. Many of you, did anybody raise up your hand? Did you guys get that in the mail this week? This is a list of the Spitfire Fund initiatives. This is 30, you saw three of them enlarged upon in the video, but 32 different projects we want to undertake that will be felt around the world as a result of the Holy Spirit of God coming upon us and us all considering above and beyond tithes and offerings, how might we end one year and begin another? How might we honor Jesus, whose birth we celebrate at Christmas time, by an offering that we would give that we've called the Spitfire Fund? And some of you will be able to give what would be a huge gift to others of us. And others of you might give what says someone else might not be a big gift. But that's why I want you to remember, and there's a magnet in the gift that you're going to get that I hope you put on your refrigerator as you give. It's got a verse on it from Exodus about the people all giving with, with willing hearts and, and touch spirits, the gift that they were called to give. It's the bullseye for you. And your bullseye is different from me. What my wife and I are planning, we have a separate account that we put money in all year long for this gift, above and beyond our normal tithes and offerings. But, but the gift that we're going to give that's sacrifice for us, that's stretch for us, some of our favorite memories. This is our seventh year of doing this. Some of our favorite, we've had a lot of fights as we dialogue about the gift. But, but bullseye for us might not even take faith for you. If you saw our amount, you might go, that's cute. And that's okay. It just needs to be bullseye for me. The, the Spitfire Fund itself, yeah, Lady Houston gave enough to buy multiple planes. Great. But Peter Bottomley from Guilford, England, he gave enough to purchase one rear tire. And a, a rear tire is necessary for a Spitfire engine to land. And every time a Spitfire was heard over skies, Peter Bottomley, you better believe he ran outside to see, is that the tire I paid for? And what I love is that as we all would give what's a, a bullseye gift for us, a faith gift, a sacrifice, a, a sacrifice. let's use that word and make sure it's, it's worthy of being used that it represents a sacrifice for us. I believe that the small gift, the large gift, they're all going to mix together. And guess what? We will all have ownership of what is done. The building in, in Polson, the building here, the equipment that allows us to send this broadcast out to be watched in hundreds of countries around the world, every single state in the United States, what has allowed all of these decisions for Christ over the years, guess what? You did that, and I did that. No one can say, that was me. We can all say, that was us. Y'all, this is us. I know NBC's been running with it, but that's always been our story. This is us. This is who we are. This is what we do. We are the church. This is God's plan A to save the world. It has always been. It has, will always be. 
We are the blood-bought, spirit-filled sons and daughters of the King of Kings sent into a broken world to feed hungry people, to clothe the naked, and we will hear in eternity what you have done for the least of these, you have done for me. And we'll say, what do we do for you, Jesus? And he will say, when you did for the poor, what you did for the orphan, what you did for the widow, what you did for the single mother, that was me. I was hungry, you fed me. I was in prison, you visited me. We are here to spit fire. We are here. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to preach. I was just going to close the service out. But y'all get me so excited with your faith. It overwhelms me to think of, 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 a, of such a hard year for all of us to be the perfect circumstances under which we would all hold these envelopes and say, how are we supposed to integrate with the series? What will it take for us to sacrifice? What is it, what is it gonna look like for us to sow some seeds? What does the friendship center of Helena mean to us? To give to kids who are the victims of domestic violence and sexual assault. What does the rescue mission of Salt Lake City mean? Women who are in inpatient recovery programs who are addicted to drugs and alcohol who need help. It's been a hard year for all of us, but it's been a really hard year for people who are the most vulnerable. And I believe it, 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 we are positioned to have the greatest Christmas we've ever had. I believe we are positioned to, to, the, the, to the greatest ministry days we've ever had, church. I believe all the dreams of all the buildings, all the things we want to do are going to happen. But I, I believe they're going to happen from us putting other dreams before our own. And I think in a year where, where many of us feel like, I, I just don't even know how I could even begin to think about others. I'm just coping here. I'm telling you, some of the best times have come in my life when I want to focus the most on me, but I choose to focus most on other people. It was the Stanford economist Paul Romer who once said, a crisis is a terrible thing to waste. And in a pandemic and in economic uncertainty, and in a time where there's racial division and political division, y'all, Thanksgiving is coming. It's going to be real. Getting, sitting across the table and hearing from Uncle Joe about his theories. But who can argue with doing the work of, of taking care of people who are the most, the most vulnerable? And I, I think this is our time to shine. A crisis is a terrible thing to waste. So why not now? Why not now should we not believe in faith for the greatest above and beyond offering in the history of Fresh Life Church? Why not now can we believe that people are going to hear the word of God and find freedom in their calling and find help and strength and stand? I'm so excited for what's going to happen. I'm, I'm thrilled and humbled. I'm excited. It's going to take faith. I mean, these outreach projects, these 32 projects, uh, they amount to $470,000. So before we do anything that we need to do, believe me, we've had a hard year too, all right? Every business and nonprofit and church in the country has taken hits, this one included, all right? But at the same time, I have to believe that faith is our course and it will never be a mistake to trust our unknown future to a God we know, a God whose name is Jesus. And so as I've said, these 14 almost years of Fresh Life Church, my butt is puckered. I feel like we're skiing in front of an avalanche. <laughs> but I, I, I believe I've heard from heaven. And, uh, and so this is, this is the way, right? Is that okay? Can I say that, Mandalorian? This is the way. Anybody with me? Come on, say it with me. Say, this is the way. This is the way. This is the way. And I'm going to pray, and we're going to close, but 
I just want to also add how, how thrilled I am that I get to give my gift, that, that I'm going to give alongside the gifts of not only you, but your children. And that when you give your gift, it's going to mingle in with the gifts of my children. You know, and we gave at our Fresh Life. And by the way, those of you church online, Facebook, YouTube, uh, archive, watch parties, if you did not receive one of these, we took our records of people who have given in years past, and we sent these in the mail to those addresses. But perhaps you've moved, or perhaps as many, and this is, happens all the time. So people have given gifts, but in our old system, it didn't require you to give an address. And so if you didn't get one, you're like, dang, why do you guys not love me? I've given here before. I have needs. I, have, I, have, I need a magnet. I want... Please go to freshlife.church slash spitfirefund, and you can request a kit there. We would be thrilled to send one your way. Uh, we also have kids giving kits, which allows them to decorate an airplane that they get to build, and then they get to collect a, find a jar or receptacle in their house to collect their, their, their gift. And then uh, everyone in the church who will give on December 6th as we give that offering, um, we get to do it together. And no one's gift is more important than anybody else's. And no one gets to feel like mine, mine didn't matter because God uses it all. Nuts and bolts and wings and propellers and fuselages and cockpits. Anybody with me? Let's celebrate in Jesus' name. I'm going to pray. And when I pray in a moment, I'm going to give you space and time to just acknowledge weariness. I, I preached to a pastor's conference uh, this week, 600 pastors that gathered together, and they, I said, what do you want me to preach about? I'll do anything. How, how can I best serve these men, is, men and women is what I was asking. And, and it, the pastor surprised me because he said, would you please give some kind of message that would remind them that, it's, that being a pastor is good? I was like, um, yes. And he explained, he just said, so many pastors in their network at least have been feeling like they're going to quit. And many of them have forgotten how, how, because they've had to become a TV studio. You know, they've had to do, they've had to do so many things they never, they never were taught to do or resourced to do. And, and he said, just, would you please just help them to see that it's it's worthwhile? Because a lot of them are feeling like wanting to quit. And it just made me realize, like, there's probably a lot more people than just pastors who got that feeling inside them. And so as we pray, I just want to just give you space and time. If you would say, there's something I feel like quitting on. I feel weariness creeping into my bones, something real deep. And I'm going to pray for you. Bow your heads, close your eyes with me. And Father, as we think about that original gathering, 120 in an upper room, a daunting task lay before them. How do we get this gospel all across the Roman Empire, all around the world? What, what sense of fear and foreboding must have been theirs? Thank you, Father, that you never intended for them to do your work without your power. That's why you said, wait until the Holy Spirit has come, the comforter. You chose the best word to describe your spirit, a comforter. How we love our blankets on a cold morning when we still have more time to sleep. That's your spirit. The comforter's coming. And when you came, you not only comforted, you resourced, you empowered When we see Peter preaching fearlessly, going to his death, God, sacrificially, we're like, who is this? This is the the scared Peter denying you before a servant girl? This is what Peter looks like, filled with the Spirit, spitting fire. And so, God, as we come to you trembling, as we come to you, many of us exhausted, as we come to you feeling like, did I make a mistake? I, I sense there's someone here who's, was wondering if, if maybe they made a mistake moving to where they live now. 
That's just Montana weather for you. It'll get you. I wonder if there's someone who took a new job and you were so excited about it, but now the, the sexiness has worn off and now it's just hard. And you're wondering if maybe you made a mistake. Maybe someone's feeling exhausted because of a relationship that, that is just requiring more emotionally than you have to give. You feel drained. You feel run down. You feel weary. That's okay. You just need to have a power supply to go to, to receive new strength. And that's the Holy Spirit. He is there to give you the ability to do what you cannot do on your own, to become who you could never become on your own. This is the spirit that Jesus wants to live inside of you. Maybe you had a relationship with the Holy Spirit at one point, but today you feel so far from him. The good news is the Bible says you can ask to be refilled and refilled and refilled. And you need to be refilled tomorrow and next week. I'm not preaching this sermon under the anointing of last year. I cannot expect a blood and thunder anointing or a wild beyonder anointing or a compass rose anointing or a 2020 anointing. This is now what you want to do in these days. Our relationship with you must be in the present tense. We need you for November like we didn't need you in October. It's a new need. It's a new season. It's a new trial. The election's over, but I still feel tired. We need you, Jesus, every hour. Can I just ask while we're praying with heads bowed and eyes closed, if you're on YouTube or church online or in one of our watch parties or in a location, and you would just say, Father, I'm exhausted. I'm so tired. Could you just raise up your hand to just admit that? I'm tired, I'm tired, I'm tired. I sense the Holy Spirit ready to rush in and reanimate your efforts, ready to come upon you like power from above. By raising your hand up right now, you're saying, I want a flame above my head and I want God's word to come rushing out of my mouth. I hear the sound of a mighty rushing wind as, as our good Father in heaven is eager to give the Spirit up to us who ask for him. We have not, though, often because we ask not. So heaven, hear us cry. We need you, God. We want you upon us. We don't want to do this on our own. We will be like Samson with a haircut. We will easily fall. But with you, God, we can outrun a fast army. We can leap over a high wall. We can do the impossible, Father, with your strength inside of us. So hear us today, God, asking for more of you, wanting a flood, wanting that flame, needing that wind so we are not weary. I thank you that you've heard us cry today. I thank you that you've filled us with power. I thank you that we will see your glory. You can put your hands down. I sense the Holy Spirit so thick in our midst. And I believe whenever that is happening, wherever there's ministry taking place, it's also the opportunity for salvation. Listen to me, friend, while we pray. For I believe there are some present who have never made the most important decision. And that is the decision to open your soul up to your creator's touch. To allow him to come in and meet the deepest needs of your soul. Not the need for food or for, for, for money or for human affection. Those are all important. The most important need is the need for salvation. Two things are true. God loves you and your sin separates you from that love. You are created to know and to walk and to live in a relationship with your creator. But sin has come into the equation because of our own transgressions. Don't take offense to that. You're like, you're calling me a sinner. Listen, I'm owning that I'm a sinner. 
And I think in your heart of hearts, you know that you've done wrong. That's why you feel guilt. And that sin is bad. And there's no excuse for it. And that sin has separated you from God and has brought judgment upon you. And that judgment left unfixed will lead to hell. But God loves you so much that he sent his son Jesus to die on the cross, not just for you, but as you. As he hung there, it was as though he was strapped into the electric chair for a crime you committed. He died as though he were you, as though he were Levi Lusco. And it was for my sins that he perished. But he didn't stay dead. After he died, he was raised back to life. And he is today alive at the right hand of his father. And he is willing to save you if you believe in him. But you must confess your sin. You must open your heart up to his love. And that can happen right now. So with heads bowed, eyes closed, I believe God is using internet and I believe he's using fiber optics and satellites to right now send his mercy flooding into your life. And if you, listen to me, if you don't repent, you will perish and you will have no one to blame but yourself. For God has done everything short of violating your free will to save you. So in this moment, just turn to him. Just right in your heart, right there. Just turn to him. Open your heart. Unclench those muscles. I know there's lots of good reasons why you're so resistant to him. People who called themselves Jesus people have burned you. You've read stories in the newspaper about hypocritical pastors. I understand all that. But God in heaven will never let you down. God in heaven will never be a hypocrite. And he's the one who wants to save you. So right there in your hearts, I want you to pray a prayer and I want you to say it with your mouth. And I'm going to ask the church family to pray it with you to say that we're with you. Dear God, I'm a sinner. And I can't do anything about that except bring my sin to you and ask you to forgive it because of what Jesus did on the cross. And when he rose from the dead, so right here, right now, I give myself to you. Invade my soul with your love and make me your son, daughter, I belong to you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Could we just celebrate for those making that decision?